بسم اللہ الرحمن الرحیم نحمده ونصلی علی رسول الکریم اما بعد الحمدللہ tonight is the 14th of June in the year 2023 and alhamdulillah we moved on to the 52nd night that we're going through the exalted and dear life of the illustrious companion Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Mas'ud so to mention another reminder with regards to the blessed 10 days which are fast approaching what deeds are we told to focus upon so in a hadith in Imam Ahmad in his Musnad Tabarani Tahawi on Shaykh Al-Bani Rahmatullah states Hassan in Irwa Ul-Ghalim number 890 our beloved messenger he said Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam say in abundance La ilaha illallah Subhanallah Allahu Akbar and Alhamdulillah i.e. in these t- 10 most glorious days so we should in abundance utter this blessed phrase which I've mentioned that just one utterance an angel takes it up to the heavens the angels supplicate for your forgiveness and these very words themselves do a tawaf around the arsh calling your name to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so in these auspicious 10 days the divine command is to increase in that blessed utterance the other deed which is mentioned the hadith is in Tirmidhi Ibn Majah Behaki in his Sunan Al-Qubra and others our beloved messenger he said Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam fasting one of them equals to fasting a full year and Qiyam Aita Hajjad during any of their nights equals the Qiyam of Laylatul Qadr so Fasting is mentioned and that's authentic from various reports from our beloved mothers. If you fast one day, you get the reward of fasting a whole year. And tahajjid during any of the nights is equal to Laylatul Qadr. So this narration which mentions this, Shaykh Al-Bani Rahmatullah stated Da'if in his checking of Mishkat number 1416. So why did Imam Tirmidhi record it? And the response is because of the Qur'an. So Allah the Almighty and Glorious, He swears in Surah 89 verse 2, And by the ten nights. And Abdullah ibn Abbas said, The ten nights that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala took oath upon are the ten nights of Dhul Hijjah. This is in Hakim in his Mustadrak number 3927, Behaki in his Shu'abul Iman number 3747. So what's interesting? Allah swears by the ten nights, not the ten days. So Allah is clearly hinting to the fact that it's not just the ten days that are holy. The ten nights are also he sworn by. And Ibn Abbas is referring to the ten nights, the first ten nights of Zul Hijjah. So even though the hadith in Tirmidhi which mentions the offer tahajjad, you get the reward of Laylat al-Qadr. It makes sense because the Quran is highlighting that these nights are special. So in summary, the deeds you should focus upon in these 10 August days are to increase in the third kalima, to fast uh, the first nine days if possible, and to offer tahajjit, and you'll get the reward of offering tahajjit on the night of Qadr. And of course, ultimately, you should avoid sins, because sins are, is what are truly displeasing to Almighty Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the last few sessions, I've been highlighting Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu's connection to the glorious book. 
And I mentioned that he loved certain surahs above others. Surah Baqarah, Surah uh, Isra, Surah Maryam, Surah Al-Kahf. But there's another report which mentions and also the Surah Hamid. There's a report and this hadith is recorded in Hakim in his Mustadrak Sahih and Ibn Kathir's Tafsir. Which surah did the great Ibn Mas'ud recite to our beloved Messenger? And I mentioned that out of all the surahs, he decided to recite Surah Nisa. And then I highlighted then that there was a reason for that. So here, Ibn Mas'ud himself explained something about this blessed surah. He said, There are five verses in Surah An-Nisa that I would prefer to the life of this world and all that is in it. So he said that there's five verses in this blessed surah. Even if you gave me the whole world, I wouldn't exchange it. Verse 40. Verse 31, verse 48, verse 64, and verse 110. So these five verses, he loved too much in the Sayyid Hadith in Haq. So obviously, what was he referring to? So ideally, we would know immediately, but like I mentioned, our connection to the Quran is very poor. So just to mention... A brief about these five verses. Why were they so dear to Ibn Mas'ud? Verse 40. Verse 40 mentions that Allah the Almighty and Glorious, <coughs> He graciously multiplies the rewards for our good deeds, doubling them or increasing them. So obviously, we do our deeds, Allah in His kindness multiplies them. So this is why He loved that verse. Verse 31. Verse 31 mentions that if you avoid the major sins, Allah will forgive all the rest. <coughs> so now this needs to be explained. A person goes, well, which one of us hasn't committed a major sin? You know, it's like, it's common to commit major sins. So how is that a blessing? So Imam Ahmad explained. Imam Ahmad Rahmatullah in Qurtubi in his tafsir. He said that if you commit major sins, Rasulullah will intercede for you on the day of judgment. He actually said, my intercession is for the major sinners. So Allah in Tirmidhi. He goes, if Rasulullah intercedes for your major sins and they are forgiven, Allah promises in verse 31, he will forgive the rest. So what's left? So Ibn Masood said, this verse is also most dear to me, verse 31. Verse 48. And he mentions there that it is the only sin of shirk which Allah will not forgive. It's obviously self-explanatory. How hopeful is that verse? Apart from shirk, Allah will forgive if he wishes. Verse 64. It mentions that if you go to our beloved Messenger and then ask him respectfully to supplicate for your forgiveness, you will be forgiven. The verse actually highlights this. If they had come to you and sought forgiveness, Allah Ta'ala, they would have found their Lord forgiving and merciful. So the, the wassail to the Prophet Sallallahu because this verse is most beloved to me. And verse 110, in which it mentions that if you seek istighfar, not, not tawbah, Allah Ta'ala will forgive you. So what's the difference? 
Tawbah is when you repent and you say you will not go back to the sin. Istighfar is you ask forgiveness, but you do not make the intention not to return to the sin. In verse 110, Allah the Almighty and Glorious mentions, if you seek istighfar, I will forgive you. So what do we learn? This is why he loved this surah, Surah Nisa. He actually explained, and this is why he recited it to Rasulullah, because he wanted Rasulullah to hear this blessed surah, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So all praise and thanks be to Almighty Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for such truly priceless blessings. And finally, in terms of the fathomless meanings of the Quran, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud had very informatively said, the Quran was revealed in seven ahruf. Each verse thus has an outer and inner aspect, a limit, I which must not be crossed, and an azimuth, I matla. So let's look at this. So where is this recorded? This is recorded in Tabarani in his Kabir 10-130. Tabarani in his Osat number 773 or 1-236. Abu Ya'la in his Musnad number 5149-5403. Sahih. Ibn Hiban in his Sahih number 75 or 1-276. Bazar 3-90. Hafiz Bahuwi in his Sharh Sunnah 1-262-3. Tahawi in his Mushkil Athar 8-87. Hafiz ibn Abdul Bar in his Tamheed 8-282, Al-Haytami in Majma Al-Zawaid number 11579 or 7-152 stated Hassan Azri Imam Sayyuti Rahmatullah in his Jami As-Saghir number 2727. So in this authentic report, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud said something very interesting. What did he say, Radiyallah? The Quran was revealed in seven ahruf, i7 Qira'at. Each verse has an outer and inner, a limit which you cannot cross, and an azimut, matala. So what he was saying was that the Quran has got different meanings. It has shades of meanings and it can be incorporated, but there's a point you cannot cross. So it can incorporate, for instance, a hundred meanings. But there's a point he goes, no, you can't. So now question, how deep a knowledge must you have to know the limit? So if somebody gives you a correct meaning of a verse and he says to you, what's the limit? I'll be honest, what does that mean to me and you? What's the limit? What are you talking about, brother? Is there another meaning? Is there another hundred meanings? Is there a thousand meanings? What's the limit? He said, I don't know what you're talking about. There you go. That's the connection. So Ibn Masood was saying, it has limits. Question, would he say this if he didn't know? <laughs> so his knowledge of the Quran was, you know, an extremely deep and intense level. Also, Hakim al-Ummah, Abu Darda, what did he say? Abu Darda radiallahu said, La tafaqqah qulla al-fiqh hatta tala lil-Qur'ani wujuhan kathira. You cannot have a comprehensive understanding of fiqh until you can see the Quran from various perspectives. This is in Ahmad in his Zuhd, page 134, Hakim al-Tirmadi in his Nawadir al-Usul, number 19, 
Abdul Razak in his Al Musannaf number 20,473, Ibn Sa'ad in his Tabaqat 2-357, Abu Nu'im al 1-211, Hafiz Ibn Abdul Bari in his Jami Bayan al Ilm, Hafiz Baghwi in his Tafsir 1-46, Fatal Bari 13-383. So what did Ibn, uh, Abu Darda say? He goes, You cannot have al Fiqh. You cannot have a comprehensive understanding of fiqh. Until you can see the Quran from various perspectives. Because if you can see that, you're on the road to fiqh. Meaning, you have to have a very deep understanding of the Quran for you to have a deep understanding of fiqh. So what he was basically saying was, the mujtahidun have to be immersed in the Quran. They must be drenched in the Quran. If a person is given fatwa and you note his connection to the Quran, how is he giving fatwa? <laughs> you know, if you think about that, that's what it boils down to. You don't even know the names of the surahs. What are you giving fatwa for? <laughs> because that's not, that's not to belittle you. I'm just telling it as it is. And even if you name the names of the surahs, what do you know about the tafsir? How many tafsirs do you know about the verses? So note again, the great companions are highlighting the Quran is the core of everything of our deen. <laughs> Those the endless tafsirs by the respected scholars which will undoubtedly continue to the end of time. So think about that. Any other book they would have stopped. If somebody goes, there's been a commentary on Robinson Crusoe, you know, that book. He goes, okay. How many commentaries? He goes, 50. Would you need 50 commentaries of Robinson Crusoe? Well, I just read Robinson Crusoe. I don't need to go into tafsir. But go on then, let's have a look. But after the bit, you'll get circular statements. They're not giving you anything new because you've completed the commentary of that book. Why has the Quran not ended? Why have the scholars think about it? No point in reinventing the wheel. You've just done the same tafsir as number two in the line. You've done the same tafsir as number 800 in the line. They're all different. Why? Because the Quran is like that. Why is the Quran formed the way it is? So it can, it can accommodate for the prevailing situations in time. If somebody says, how does the Quran answer the problems of 2023? They've seen. He goes, hey, it's there. Everything's in the Quran. You need Allah. Allah's giving you the answers. Just, like, just as it gave the answers for 1923. Just as it gave the answers for 1823. The Quran's still the same. But that's the miracle of the Quran. Because where did you get? Who gives you that understanding? The scholars, look at the commentaries throughout the millennia. You see the commentaries and that's the miraculous nature of the Quran. In conclusion, we thus beg our loving Lord subhanahu wa ta'ala to make the Quran the Rabi or the life-giving reign of our hearts as requested by no other than our beloved messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Refer to Ahmad Tabarani Abu Ya'la and Shaykh al-Bani rahmatullahi stated sahih in his As-Sahiha number 199. Amin. So you should regularly make the dua that, oh my Lord, make the Qur'an the rabbi of my heart, i.e. enlighten my heart with the glorious Qur'an. So now to move on to another subsection. So entitled, Sayyidina Ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu, his exhortations on the subject of knowledge. So inshallah, we will now spend a few weeks of our short lives and enrich ourselves 
by taking a glimpse <coughs> into the truly fathomless knowledge of this most exalted of men. <coughs> so that's not a figure of speech. We will be spending weeks. Why? Because he's a fountain of knowledge. He's an ocean of knowledge. So we need to take from the ocean. So there'll be weeks we'll be spending on it. He's got so much to tell us that I've actually put it into subheadings. So we're going to discuss the subject of knowledge. What did Abdullah ibn Mas'ud say about knowledge? With regards to the acquisition of sacred knowledge, this will take effort and sacrifice because Abdullah ibn Mas'ud himself said, no person is born an alim. Knowledge is gained through studies. No person is born an alim, i.e. a scholar. Knowledge is indeed gained through studies. This is recorded by Hafiz ibn Abdul Barr rahmatullahi in his Jami Bayan al-Ilm, volume 1, page 100, Ayat al-Sahaba, volume 4, page 646 of the New English Translation, Bazar al-Haytami in Majma al-Zawaid, volume 1, page 129, stated Sahih. Ayat al-Sahaba, volume 4, page 763 of the New English Translation, relates the second sentence. So what was the great Ibn Masood saying in this Sahih hadith? Nobody's born an alim. Now, why, why did he say that? It means when you go to an alim, you're actually going to a person who sacrificed a portion of his life for knowledge. So what was he highlighting? He was highlighting he needs to be respected or she needs to be respected. Why? Because they've, they've sacrificed. So think of an alim. Here comes the Yusuf. So why do we respect him? Because we know he sacrificed. And he, obviously, he doesn't like boasting about his own studies, but he's traveled the whole world. So, no, was he born an alif? Nobody's born an alif. Then he said, Ibn Mas'ud knowledge is gained through studies. So what he was saying was, you need to sacrifice. How much are you willing to sacrifice to acquire the legacy of the prophets? <laughs> Think about that. Look at the sacrifice we make for dunya. We don't like admitting to that as well, which is interesting. Even if you go to a person who's got two, three jobs, you think you're drowning in dunya? No. Fair enough. And when you say, what about Akhirah? They go, well, yeah, you know, we'll get to that. So basically, what do you learn? He's not, he's not sacrificing. How is he going to acquire the knowledge? Similarly, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud said, start your mornings as either an alim or busy acquiring sacred knowledge of the deen. But do not be something other than these two. If you are unable even to do this, then at least have love for the ulama and never despise them. <laughs> this is in Tabarani, Al-Haytami in Majma Az-Zawaid, volume 1, page 122. He comments upon the chain of narrators. Ayat al-Sahaba, volume 4, page 646 of the New English Translation. So what was the great Ibn Masood advising us? Start your morning as an alim. I'm not going to be an alim. He goes, if you can't, acquiring knowledge. Yeah. Alhamdulillah, we're acquiring knowledge. He goes, don't be other than these two. <laughs> so either become an alim or learn. And then he said, if you can't even do that, I think of the mercy, showing mercy now, because you can't be an alim. You can't learn. He goes, if you can't even do that, at least love the ulama. And yet, you notice a lot of Muslims, they don't have that. They despise them. So they're not an alim. 
Are they studying? No. Debate isn't studying. That's just gapshap. Debate isn't studying. You're not learning anything. You're wasting your life. The same people, do they love the scholars? So according to Ibn Mas'ud, what is he calling you? He's calling you a cabbage. Because you're wasting, you could be doing whatever you want because you're not doing nothing. You're wasting your life. So when people say you're wasting your life, that doesn't mean anything. Why? Because who are you to say that? Ibn Mas'ud saying it. You're wasting your life. Suleiman ibn Mihran, rahmatullah he said, one day Abdullah ibn Mas'ud who was with some of his companions and a Bedouin came and asked, for what reason have these people gathered around you? Abdullah ibn Mas'ud he said, they have gathered to distribute amongst themselves the inheritance of Muhammad. It's recorded by Hafiz al-Khatib al-Baghdadi in his Sharaf, Ashab al-Hadith, page 45. So again, Bedouins, you know, they're not all there. So imagine thousands of students, hundreds of students. So the Bedouins looking and he found a stage and his two people do find a stage. Why aren't they in market? What was this? What are they doing? So Ibn Masood didn't get angry with them. Why? Because the Prophet didn't get angry with Bedouins. What did he say to the Bedouins? They've gathered to distribute amongst themselves Rasulullah's inheritance. Meaning, did he leave behind dinars and dirhams? So how do we know that? In Abu Dawood number 3641, Tirmidhi number 2682, Ibn Imaj number 223, Shaykh al-Bani states Sahih, in Sahih Sunan Ibn Imaja 1-43, our beloved messenger said, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Inna al-ulama'a warathatul anbiya Verily the scholars are the inheritors of the prophets alayhi salatu wa salam wa innal anbiya lam yuwarithu dinaran wala dirhama and verily the prophets alayhi salatu wa salam do not leave inheritance of dinars or dirhams warathu al but they leave inheritance knowledge faman akhadhahu akhadha bi hazzin wafir Whoever thus takes it has taken a plentiful share i.e. of that priceless treasure and goodness. Very famous hadith. People call half of, half of it, which is tragic. So what did the Prophet say? The scholars are the inheritors of the prophets. So what was he really saying? Who are the most intelligent people? The scholars. Because if you are inquiring the legacy of the prophets, these you can't be more, more, more intelligent than that. Then he said, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, the prophets don't leave dinars and dirhams. This is the belief of the Ahl Sunnah. The Rawafid say, no, they pass on authority. <laughs> you know, what planet are they on, right? They don't leave anything. Nothing is, and the prophet said it, not a dinar or dirham, they don't leave anything. So do we believe Sulaiman left a kingdom? <laughs> he didn't leave anything. No dinars, no dirham, nobody inherits from the prophets. <laughs> what then do you inherit? Warrathul <laughs> ilm. Their inheritance is knowledge. Think about that. When you acquire knowledge, you're taking what the legacy of the prophets are. <laughs> then what did the Prophet say? For man wafir. Whoever takes it has indeed taken a great share of the true legacy. So each of us have taken. But don't you get a bit envious that somebody has taken more? Look how tragic. Somebody's got a better driver than you. You can't sleep. 
What's that? Why are you so concerned about that? He drive his war. He tarmacked it. This guy's got the legacy of the prophets. Oh, yeah. He lock himself out. Me, you don't value knowledge. You should be not be able to sleep when somebody else has got more knowledge than you. He's taken from the prophets. Alayhi salatu wasalam. That doesn't mean you want him to, you know, you, you, it's called ghibta, uh, meaning that you don't want any harm, but you also want that as well. So now to finish. The people fall into two camps. Nothing more. In Darimi, in his Sunnah number 344, Mishkat volume 1, number 101, W in the chapter on education. Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, he said that, Dear Allah, two people's urges can never be satisfied. The one seeking knowledge, who consequently increases his efforts in pleasing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and the one seeking the worldly life, consequently indulging in transgression. Let's open the quote. Which two camps, and that's it, there's no third camp. They are two camps of mankind. And they've got something that can never be satisfied. Meaning, if it's a good thing, then it's good that you can't be satisfied. If it's a bad thing, you're doomed. The first, he said, is the one who can't be satisfied is seeking knowledge. He's never satisfied. Then he explained why. Consequently, he increases in pleasing Allah subhanahu wa That's the point of knowledge. He's not just acquiring it. He's saying, I want to make my Lord even more happy. He goes, this is what happens when he acquires the knowledge. But then he says, the one seeking the worldly life, he ends up sinning. So he's taken, he can't be satisfied. So what happens? It manifests. Then Ibn Masood said, Confirmation is found in the Quran. Isn't it again? <laughs> Surah Al-Alaq, Surah 96, verse 6 and 7. <laughs> Indeed, man transgresses all bounds, for he considers himself self-sufficient. Then he recited, Surah Fatir, Surah 35, verse 28. Verily, those truly fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala amongst his servants who have knowledge. So what did I mention a few nights back? What did Ibn Masood say about hadith? What could he do if he wanted to? Hadith of the Quran. Explain all the hadith to the Quran. He could explain the hadith to the Quran. Meaning he had the greatest knowledge of the Quran. He's doing it again here. So now what's interesting? Why didn't he go to the Quran first? Because the hadith is easy on the ears. So what did he say? Two people can never be satisfied. Two camps. Talib al-ilm wa talib al-dunya. What does Allah Ta'ala say about Talib al-Ilm in the Quran? Surah 35 verse 28. Those truly fear Allah amongst their servants who have knowledge. Allah Ta'ala is telling you, if you want the people who fear me, you will find those with knowledge, the ulama. Where does Allah Ta'ala say those who have got the sickness of dunya, they're going to transgress? Surah 96 verse 6 and 7. 
Man transgresses all bounds for he considers himself self-sufficient. Isn't that true? The more they get of dunya, the more they think they don't need God. God is for the poor. They even make statements like this. Because the only reason you worship God is because you haven't got what I've got. You're jealous. Karun, what did he say? So Allah is telling you. So Ibn Masood was saying, which camp do you belong? You want to be amongst the camp of those who are insatiable for knowledge. Now what's dangerous? Some people say too much knowledge is dangerous. Have you heard that? Too much knowledge is dangerous. Because where is that said, brother? Oh, I've heard it. Where have you heard it? In the grapevine. Is that your revelation? Grapevine. What about blackberry bush? Go down there, you might get another revelation. Where is it in the Quran? This Bakwa statement. We need too much knowledge is dangerous. Knowledge given to the one who is not ready for it is dangerous. There is text for that. But too much knowledge is not dangerous. Why? Because it's the inheritance of the prophets. You can never be satisfied with it. If you think that you're satisfied, that's the first error. Imam Shafi'i rahmatullah said, I will never stop learning even on my deathbed. Think about that. He's dying. He's, I'm not going to stop learning. I need to keep learning. I'm still dying. There's still life in me. How is that knowledge going to benefit? And yes, some people now said, that, say, I'm focusing on worship now. <laughs> there you go. Good for you, mate. So note, the great Ibn Mas'ud is now talking about knowledge. And notice, he's highlighting some of the virtues and of course the pitfalls. Are there any questions you'd like to ask? سبحان الله وبحمده وبارك الله وما بحمدك اشهد ان لا اله الا انت استغفرك واتوب اليك اعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم سبحان ربك رب العزه عما يصفون وسلام على المرسلين والحمد لله رب العالمين بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والاصل الانسان لفي خسر الذين امنوا وعملوا الصالحات والواسب الحق والواسب الصبر صدق الله